No turning back. How many know there's no turning back? Sometimes we try to turn back. God's not going to let you turn back. Amen? God's going to hold on to you. Well, this morning we have a special occasion today. We have probably the biggest, littlest guest of honor in the house today. I'd like Hannah and Johnny to bring little Samuel up here, if you would. We're going to have a baby dedication. Aw, let's tell you that together. Aw. And you can really say it when this cutie gets up here, amen? When they get up here, let's give him a big aw. I know, Hannah, this is for you and Johnny, but this is really for little Samuel. Now let's give them a big aw. Well, this is the, I'll get over here. This is the proud papa, Johnny, and this is his beautiful wife and mother, Hannah, and this little guy has a big name, Samuel James Markram. He's perfect. He's beautiful. Let's say it one more time. Oh, and I got to say this. I love this couple. They kind of remind me of Cheryl and myself for some reason. How long have you guys been married now? Uh, a, year and a, half. a year and a half. Okay. It's not a trick question. Yeah. Uh, I was honored to perform uh, the ceremony for them at a park down at uh, Brad Clinn, south of Atwood. Brad Oaklin. That's what I said. Fox Ridge. <laughs> Ryan and Brooke. That's another relative there who just got married at Brad Oaklin. Hi, Ryan and Brooke. Anyway... Anyway, it was a beautiful ceremony, and by golly, it was beautiful. Out in the park, I got that part right, right? <laughs> but I was honored and have been honored with this couple. They are followers of Jesus Christ that just blesses my heart. Um, I actually found out when we talked to them that you all met in sixth grade. All met when they were sixth graders, and we always asked the couple, what was it that you loved about the other? And I do remember this uh, what Johnny said, it really stood out to me, as simple as it was. Johnny, who's the more quiet of the two, he said, I love everything about Hannah. She just makes me happy. Well, I'm happy to stand here and watch this family of Johnny and Hanny, Hannah grow into this family, grow into this larger family with this beautiful little boy called Samuel James Markram. Johnny and Hannah wanted to dedicate Samuel this morning because today... He's exactly three months old. Is that right? In Proverbs 22, verse 1, it says, A good name is more desirable than great riches. Johnny and Hannah chose the name Samuel James after both grandfathers. Samuel is named, of course, after his proud grandpa Sam Brandenburg, who's sitting back there. And James is from Johnny's father, who passed away a few years ago, who I know would be so proud of you all. The truth is a child dedication service is an opportunity for parents to publicly declare their intent to raise their child in a way that honors God. And the truth is a child dedication service is really a parent dedication service. As parents publicly declare to raise their child in the faith until the child is old enough to make his own decision and confession of Jesus Christ for himself. It's also a time for family and friends in the church body here at Victory Church to say we will partner with them as best we can to see that this takes place. I love Psalms 32, verse 8. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye upon you. So God is telling us right there he wants to guide us every step of the way. 
He longs to direct us with His love and His wisdom. He offers to teach us the best way to go through life, and that's by walking uprightly before the Lord, following His commands and His decrees. And as parents, when we release our ownership of our children to Him, we understand that God is responsible for the way in which they're designed, and He already knows the plan and purpose for their life. But Hannah and Johnny, God has left it up to us to show them His way. To give your child to God is not just a ceremony, it's a commitment. It's a commitment that you are going to be a godly parent. Parent dedication requires you both keeping yourself right with God. It's committing to teach this child about Christ. It's committing to teach him and keep him in church. To love this child, even if loving them means disciplining them and letting God discipline you. It's committing to pray for this child, to train this child, to stay married for this child. That's a good one. There are a lot of reasons, but that's a really good one. You're committing to make your home a holy place and to live a righteous life. So Johnny and Hannah, it is from you as parents that Samuel will learn about God. As we commit him to God this morning, we are committing to teach him how to experience and love God and know his son, Jesus Christ. Johnny and Hannah, I now ask you, do you promise before God, your families, and this congregation to pray for and to pray with Samuel so that he will grow in the knowledge of God and in his own spiritual life walk with him? If so, answer, we do. Do you promise to train this child in body, mind, and spirit for fellowship with Almighty God? If so, answer, we do. Congregation, we have a part to play. Do you promise to encourage and prayerfully support this family? If so, we do. Get our little anointing oil here. To be anointed by God is not only to be picked, but it's also to be empowered by Him for the task and position which He has called us to. The Hebrew word Messiah and the Greek word Christ both mean the anointed. In the Old Testament, someone who was anointed by God for special service to God had oil poured upon them. The oil represents the Holy Spirit. The oil represents the power, the presence, and the protection of Almighty God. So this morning I'm going to anoint little Samuel as we dedicate him to the Lord. Samuel James Markram, we hereby dedicate you to the Lord, trusting His grace to keep you until you shall place your own trust in Him. Numbers uh, 6, 24 Verse 26 says, The Lord may may He bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and His grace be upon you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and give you His peace. Today and forever, we dedicate you to the Lord. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. And everyone said, Amen. Could we applaud this little guy and this new family? I have a dedication certificate here for you, and then we have a letter here. I didn't seal it so you can read it, but it's a letter that we want you to reseal. It's from us at Victory Church, and it tells about what has happened here today in his baby dedication. And when he gets 12 years old, I want you to open it, I want him to open it. And I want him, and prayer, uh, prayerfully, by that moment, and maybe even before that moment, he will turn his life over to Jesus Christ for himself. So I just look forward to that day. God bless you both. We love you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Can I? Uh, <laughs>
<laughs> Hallelujah. Let's say all again. Ah. Our God is so good. Amen. He is an awesome, awesome, perfect God. Well, how are you this morning? You all look good. Turn to your neighbor and tell them they look good, even if they don't, okay? Some of you are getting carried away. Well, we're in week number two of our series called Identity, where we are looking at uh, who we are in Christ. We're actually walking our way through a New Testament letter, and I say that because it was a letter. It started out as a letter, not a book, but a letter. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, or the letter of Ephesians, to God's people. He wrote this uh, letter to people who were dealing with real problems, real people living in a real city with real problems and real issues, and he wrote the letter to try to encourage them, to bring a fresh faith into their life. With that said, how many of us need a fresh faith once in a while in our life? We need the fresh wind of the Holy Spirit blowing, blowing through our lives. How many need some fresh encouragement in your life? Some of us just need some fresh understanding of something that we don't understand, or maybe something that we have forgotten. And Ephesians, as small a book as it is, it covers all of that. Ephesians is only six chapters long, and the first three chapters of Ephesians cover something called theology. It's about who God is. It's about uh, what He's done. It's about His purpose, His plan for your life. Um, and the last three chapters of Ephesians is all about application, applying what we know about God. Last week, I talked about our identity in God, who we are in Christ. Last week, we talked about how God chose us in advance. He loved us in advance. He adopted us into His family uh, even before the foundations of the world were established, even before he started creating what he created, the earth and the world and the universe, he says that he knew us. That's hard for our minds to grasp, but then you got, have to realize that's how big our God is. Before he started anything, he knew you and me. That tells me that we were on his heart and his mind probably before everything else. God already established our identity before we even existed. How does that work? I said last week, I have no clue. You don't have any clue. No one that says they do really do because the topic is so much bigger than we are. And I'm not God, thank goodness, amen. And you're not God, thank goodness. But he established who we are, and he says that you're loved. He says that you are chosen. He says that he knew us even before anything began. Now, if that's not enough to stir you up this morning, first of all, I'm not sure what will, but if that's not enough to stir you up, it's probably because you don't really fully understand the bad news that I'm talking about. In other words, in order for the good news to be really, really good news, you have to get a good grasp on the bad news. And I don't know about any of you here today, but I'm kind of a good news second kind of person. A good news second. How many of you are a... Let's say a bad news first person. You want to get the bad news first. How many are, want to get the good news first? We've got both in the house. But you know what I'm saying? When somebody says, well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. It's like the doctor I heard about that was talking to his patient and said, hey, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is they have these beautiful, amazing golf courses in heaven. The bad news is you've got a 9 o'clock tea time on Tuesday. 
Some of you will get that later. But how many of you are bad news first kind of people? Just raise your hand. You're bad news first. You want to get the bad. Those are kind of the pessimists in the room if you want to look around. How many of you are like, no, I want the good news first? We've got both in the room. And I want to say again that I want to get the bad news first for a couple reasons. The first reason is the good news helps me forget the bad news. Amen? If you get good news after bad news, it kind of takes away the sting of the bad news. And the good news is so much better, number two, once you realize the bad news. Amen? So you can kind of look at it that way. But it's the same way with the gospel message. It's the same way with God's Word. We really can't downplay either one. We've got bad news and we've got good news. We've got a diagnosis and we've got a prescription for the cure for that diagnosis. And we all know that if you go to a doctor and he misdiagnoses your condition, you're not going to get well, right? I mean, think about it. If I go to a doctor and I've got cancer all through my body and the doctor doesn't want to hurt my feelings and he just tells me, oh, you've got a cold, go take some vitamin C, get some chicken noodle soup, get plenty of rest and you're good to go. I would say that's not the most loving thing that that doctor could do for me. Amen? He might think it's loving because he doesn't want to hurt my feelings with the truth, but how many know we need to hear the truth? How many know, even if it hurts our feelings, we need to get the diagnosis in order to get to the cure? That works in the natural, that works in the spiritual. So today we're going to read 10 verses in chapter 2 of Ephesians. And what Paul's going to do, he's going to give us the diagnosis in the first three verses. Uh, it's the bad news. And then he's going to spend the last seven verses giving us the good news. What's that tell me? He's going to spend a whole lot more time on the good news than the bad news, but that doesn't mean you can throw out the bad news. The bad news is just as important because if the good news is going to change you and me, if the, bad news, if the good news is going to change us, then the bad news has got to shape that up. The bad news has got to put that into perspective. So he starts out in verse 1 uh, with the bad news. He starts out and he says, once you were dead. Okay, it doesn't get much worse than that, right? Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the power in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work. So when you think of the devil, he's not just sitting back twiddling his thumbs. He's not passive. He's aggressive and he's at work. And it says he's at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Verse 3, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. You might say, well, pastor, that's not a very uplifting scripture, and I'll agree it's not. Um, how many of you are thinking right now, I picked a bad Sunday to start coming to church, amen? I will be honest and say I've never seen any of these first three verses on a coffee mug for inspiration or on a t-shirt for inspiration. And chances are you're not going to go home and open up Instagram today and see these verses on a beautiful picture called a hashtag blessed life. It's not going to happen, okay? And when it comes to me being a preacher, preaching from these three verses, it's really hard. And me as a preacher and most preachers would rather just skip right past this, kind of downplay the whole thing. But I have to say this, even though these verses aren't really good verses to preach from to grow a church, they're excellent verses to preach from to grow people, to grow people individually and spiritually. And I love the fact that Paul is just brutally honest. He just puts it out there. Uh, he doesn't mince any words. He just puts it out there like it is, hits us with the truth. But there is a way for us to hear the truth that is either hurtful or harmful. 
you might say, well, there's not much difference in that, Pastor, right? No, the way I'm talking about it today, there's a big difference. There's a big difference. Like this message, it's not harmful. It might hurt. It might be unpleasant to listen to, but it's not harmful. There's a difference. Uh, there's a difference. Uh, you can't say that uh, somebody that stabs you with a knife and a surgeon cutting you with a scalpel are the same thing, because they're not. They're both cutting you open, of course. But one is to harm, and the other might be hurt. The other might hurt, but it's to help. The other, one might harm, the other is to help. One might harm, the other is to bring healing. You know, all of us have friends that genuinely love us, that are willing to speak truth into our lives. And it may hurt because it's truth, but it's not going to harm. And if you're like me, you've got other people in your life that present to you the truth, or at least their version of the truth, and their intention is to harm. They've got that on their mind from day one. The difference is in the tone. And when it comes to tone, Jesus was a master at the tone. Jesus could speak the truth in love like no one else ever could. How many remember that little story in the Gospels about the woman that came to the well in the middle of the day? Remember, Jesus saw her coming. He was actually waiting for her. She came. He knew that she was a hurting woman. Why did she come in the middle of the day? To avoid other people. Usually you would get your water early in the morning or late at night. She came in the middle of the day to avoid the dirty looks, to avoid uh, their judgment and condemnation um, all around her. And Jesus says to this hurting woman, I want to give you living water so that you'll never thirst again. He says, I know everything about you. And there was a whole lot to know about this lady. And then he says this, go and sin no more. So what did Jesus do? He gave her grace and he gave her truth. He said something to help her, not to harm her. Jesus' intention is to help us, not to harm us. That doesn't mean it might not be a little bit hurtful. But Jesus says, I want to give you something that you don't already have. Ephesians chapter 2 is going to answer three questions if you're taking notes this morning. The first one is, what was life like before you came into a relationship with God? What was your life like before you came into a relationship with God? So Paul comes out here in verse 1 and he says, hey, once you were dead, what does that word mean? I think we'd all agree that the main characteristic of any dead person is that they are unresponsive. They're unresponsive and unable to save themselves. So he said we were dead. He's meaning spiritually dead. We were unresponsive, totally helpless, and we needed saved. We needed rescued. And the truth is, we can look really alive on the outside, but do you realize we can be really dead on the inside? We might look all alive on the outside, but dead on the inside because we are separated from God, because we're severed from God. This is what I'm calling spiritual death. It's like a prisoner on death row. Before they walk uh, to the death chamber, or while they're walking to the death chamber, they've got other prisoners as they're walking down that long corridor that are saying, dead man walking. Dead man walking. And even though this person is very much alive physically, he's walking toward his death. Just as it works in the natural, it works in the spiritual. If you don't know Jesus Christ and have him in your heart, as much as I hate to say this, we are dead men walking. We are dead men walking without a hope. Second question is, why were we dead? Why were we dead? He answers that question pretty simply by saying, because of your sin. 
I'm going to give you three ways the Apostle Paul describes how we can become dead to sin. If you're taking notes, the first one is simply our flesh. Verse 3 calls it our sinful nature. Do you realize sin is a condition that every one of us was born with? And it's a condition that every one of us needs to be rescued from? One thing reminds me of that all the time are my own kids. They really are. You probably are reminded of it too. Because I've never had to teach them how to sin. Did you have to teach your kids how to sin? No, they're pros at it. Amen? They're experts at it. All by themselves. I didn't send them to two weeks worth of sin camp. I didn't have to do that. They're just sinners. My son David, I remember when he was just a little guy, when I would be holding him up in my arms, if he would get mad or he'd get excited about something, all of a sudden he would chomp onto my shoulder. And it's like he wasn't going to let go. I mean, it hurt. I didn't have to teach him how to do that. He just did that. And how many have had to teach your kids how to be selfish? No. We spend a whole lot more time telling them not to be selfish, to learn to share, right? But I'm not just picking on our kids this morning. I'm picking on you and me, too, because we're no different. We're the same way in our uh, natural nature. The verse 3 describes it as our sinful nature, our old self, with its evil desires and selfish, destructive ways. You know, it kind of seems strange for us to define ourselves or describe ourselves as slaves to our own desires. And I think our world and our culture doesn't help a whole lot because it defines freedom as basically being able to go out there and do whatever you want, whenever you want. And the problem is that our sinful nature, whenever we do things that are uh, motivated by our sinful nature, guess what happens? They're usually pretty much self-destructive. I mean, ask anyone who's ever struggled with an addiction if they know what that scripture means. I guarantee it. They at least realize the struggle. The second way we become dead to sin, if you're taking notes, is the world. Look at what Paul said in verse 2. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. So... We were never alone. We used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. So that tells me that our environment, our culture works against God to keep us in our sin. I tell you, you name me anything you want, and I can give you a good example of how our world glamorizes sin, glorifies sin, makes it look good, makes it look normal. How about lust? You don't have to look very far far at all to seek some kind of picture of lust look at a billboard look at tv look at whatever it's there greed it's what our economy is built upon and how about self-centeredness or selfishness almost every book every tv show every movie uh, every self-help book you're going to find you're going to find the theme there of somebody wanting to get what they want i could go on but you get my point and the biggest point is don't let the world squeeze you into its mold do you realize that every day the world is trying to squeeze us into its mold? It's trying to mold us and shape us out of God's plan and out of God's will into its plan. And the third way to become dead to sin is the devil. We can't leave him out. Verse 2, it says, The commanders of the power in the unseen, the commander of the power in the unseen world, he is the spirit at work. The NIV version calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Do you realize what his goal is, what his aim is for all of us? His aim is to destroy anything and anyone that God loves. And he's at work. And he's actively pursuing you and me right now. And let me just give you a heads up. He's not like the cartoon characters you see. I mean, he's not in that little red suit with that pointed little tail, the pitchfork, and the horns, the whole nine yards. No, he's a very real spiritual enemy. Amen? 
And the truth is, if you get into this book of Ephesians, Ephesians probably talks about it more than most other uh, books in the Bible, or at least in the New Testament. So to me, it's not surprising that Paul brings it up here. The devil is active in our world. and He's doing everything he can day after day to keep us from God. Paul describes Satan in a particular way, or Peter describes Satan in a particular way in 1 Peter. He calls him a roaring lion. How many remember hearing that in the Bible? Satan is a roaring lion who's on the loose, prowling around, looking for someone to devour. I don't know about you, but when I hear those words, it kind of perks my attention. It kind of makes me set up and take notice, be a little bit more alert. Like if you were out with your family at Walmart, let's just say you're at Walmart, you're walking up and down the aisles, shopping with your family, and all of a sudden somebody on the loudspeaker comes over and says, attention Walmart shoppers, we've got a lion on the loose in the store, he's roaming the aisles, he's seeking someone to devour, and by the way, everybody keep calm, everybody check out that one checkout lane with the one cashier up at the front and take your time getting out. No, if I hear that, I'm not taking my time getting out of there. I'm gathering up my family, and I'm out of that store. Amen? Paul's basically saying the same thing. There's a lion on the loose who's at work, and he's at work right now. I'd say if we're just spiritually coasting through our spiritual walk with God, with Christ, then we're losing ground, whether you realize it or not. If you're just coasting through this spiritual life, you're losing ground. If you're just um, kind of sleepwalking your way through your faith walk, and if you're not growing in your faith, you're not going in the right direction. You're actually losing ground. We may not want to admit it, but that's the truth. And Paul finally says at the end of verse 3 that God is angry. King James puts it this way. We are the object of God's wrath. None of us like to talk about the wrath of God, right? It's not politically correct in our world, amen? Something like that. Maybe it's because we tend to see the wrath of God in opposition to the love of God. And we being human beings are always going to opt out for the love of God. And I say that to say this, that when God is angry, sometimes we take that all wrong. That doesn't mean he's against us. To me, it actually means he's for us and even more for us. It's kind of like when you tell your kids, if you're walking down a sidewalk next to a busy street, you tell them, stay by my side, hold on to my hand, and don't let go, and don't dare go out into that street. And if they pulled away from you and jumped out into that street and got hit, heaven forbid, would you be angry? Yes, but not at them, but for them. Amen? And you would say in your heart, why didn't you listen? Why didn't you just listen? How many times a day do you think God says that to you and me? Why didn't you just, why didn't you just listen to me? I believe God says that more than we want to realize. That's the diagnosis. I've given you the first three verses. Now Paul's going to spend seven verses talking about the good news or the cure. And I love how he starts off in verse 4 with two of the most beautiful words in our English language. I would say they're small, but they're great. The words, but God. But you realize how powerful that is? In other words, you and I were helpless, we were hopeless, we were captured, we were dead, we were kidnapped. And then come along these two beautiful words, but God. So if you're taking notes, the third question, the main point that Ephesians answers is, what did God do for us? Have you ever thought about that? What did God do for you? Well, verse 4 starts out, but God is so rich in mercy. He's not stingy with his mercy. Do you realize that? He's rich in mercy. 
He doesn't just dole out a little bit of mercy here and there. No, he wants to lavish his mercy upon his people. It says, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And this is one of the greatest verses, I think, in Scripture. This last verse, it is only by God's grace that you've been saved. Did you catch that? It is only, and I'll stress only, by God's grace that you've been saved. It's not based upon anything you and I can bring to the table. It's, like, it's not like 50-50, God, you do 50%, I'll do the other 50. It's not even 70-30, it's only by God's grace. So I think Paul is simply saying, I've given you the diagnosis, and if you want the cure, all you have to do is receive the grace of God. Even though you're unresponsive or you've been unresponsive because of the sin in your life, he gave you Jesus. He gave us exactly what we needed. Some people might say, well, why was Jesus even necessary? Why did he have to come and die on a cross? Why couldn't have God just swept my sin under the rug and forgave me anyway? God's answer to that is because of sin. If you go way back to the Garden of Eden, when sin entered into this world, God took the skins of animals and covered a sinful Adam and Eve. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Those were the first animal sacrifices ever made. And the truth is something had to die to cover their sin. We don't do animal blood sacrifices anymore because Jesus came as the Lamb of God to be the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. But the truth is someone had to pay. And the payment was way too steep for us to bear, so God stepped in and said, wait a minute, I'll bear it. I'll bear that burden. I'll bear it through my son Jesus Christ dying on a cross. And he says in verse 6, For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Do you notice how there's a whole lot of past tense in that verse? And do you notice how many times he says in Christ and with Christ? And he goes on and he says, So God can point us to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ. He uses those words again, united with Christ. You realize that in God's eyes, if you've received this beautiful, precious gift of grace, if you've asked Jesus to come into your heart, you're already seated with Christ. You're already seated with Christ at God's table. That should give you some encouragement this morning. That should give you some confidence when the enemy comes at us and he's called the accuser. He's going to come day and night accusing us. He's going to try to tell you, you're such a loser. You're not loved. You don't amount to anything. Uh, who do you think you are in the first place? You're a fake. You're a failure. You're a phony. You're a fraud. You can't do it. When he says all that, you can look him straight in the eye and you can say and tell him who you are. I'm a child of the Most High God. Amen? I'm a child of the Most High God. Because the truth is, Jesus brought us into God's family. We're no longer dead. All of a sudden, we're alive. No longer are we unresponsive. We are alert. No longer are we bitter. We're filled with joy. No longer are we angry, but we have His perfect peace. And no longer are you homeless. You have a home. It's called heaven. There's an eternal home waiting for those that trust in the Lord. And the greatest thing, no longer are you lost. You've been found. Amen? And it's all because of Jesus Christ. I praise God for that precious gift. Amen? I praise God for His gift of Jesus Christ. So many times we still pray and we say, God, I just don't feel worthy. 
Or we say, I don't feel like God is listening to my prayers. I would say, based on what? You might say, well, based upon what I did last night, he's got to be totally ashamed of me. Or God's not listening to my prayers because I don't have enough faith, or I went through that divorce, or I'm a horrible mom, or a horrible dad. You realize that none of those things ever even entered into the equation? God doesn't listen to you and me because of our performances. We'd fail every time. God listens to us because of what His Son did for each and every one of us. So when you're praying in Jesus' name, do you really know what you're doing? You're claiming His identity, not your own. When you're praying in His name, the name that's above every name, you're claiming His identity. And He's not listening to you because of you. He's listening to you because of Jesus Christ and His righteousness. And do you realize the Bible calls Jesus our big brother? Do you realize that? He's our big brother that came to save our life. He's not our homeboy, like some people try to present Jesus as. He's not our homeboy. He's our God. A woman by the name of Sandra McCracken, uh, in her album, Live Under Lights and Wires, she shared a story about two young boys, they were brothers, who spent their summers playing around the Mississippi River. And one day during flood stage of the river, they were playing around some sandbag levees, and the levee broke, and they got stranded. And some rescue workers were trying to get to them and rescue them. They were having a hard time. It took them a while to get there. And when they finally got there, they only found one boy. And he was standing in quicksand, waist deep. And they said, well, where's your older brother? And a tear came to his eye. And he says, he's under me. I'm standing on his shoulders. I mean, think about that. His big brother hoisted him up and said, I'm going to save your life by sacrificing my own. Think about that. In the bigger picture, just as this young boy needed saving, we too were once sinking in the quicksand of our sin. And we needed our older brother Jesus to step up, and he stepped up to put us on his shoulders, to save us, to redeem us, to sacrifice his own life so that we could be saved. And like this little boy, we're still standing today in the sand of our sin But because of of what Jesus has done on the cross, we've overcome death. Amen? We've overcome death because He overcame death. And one of these days, the greatest rescuer of all, Jesus Christ, He's going to show up, and He's going to pull us out completely once and for all. That's what the Bible means when it says we're saved in Christ. And think about what Jesus did. He did what I just described a million times over. He gave His own life so that He could spare our life. And right now, if that doesn't stir you up, again, I don't know what will, but I I do know what to call it. It's something called death. And I'll say this this morning, only the fresh wind of the Holy Spirit of God can blow into your life and give you a revelation, give you a realization that it's only by His grace, by His mercy, that you can be saved and that you need to be saved from your sin. Jesus saved you because you needed saving. Jesus saved me because I desperately needed saving. I needed rescued. And there wasn't anything that I could do on my own. There's nothing you could do on your own. Jesus didn't throw you a little life vest and say, grab a hold, I'll pull you in. No, by the time He found us, we were face down. It looked like it was all over. And He breathed new life. He gave us brand new life. I was born again. You were born again if you received Christ into your heart. And let me say, that's bigger than I can even imagine. So I want to finish with verse 8. God saved you by His grace. By what? By His grace. 
Not when you performed. Not when you got your life all together. Not when you finally beat that addiction. God saved you by His grace when you believed. Right there it is. When you believed. And you can't take credit for this, it says. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. Then verse 10. For we are God's masterpiece. Do you realize He calls us His masterpiece? With warts and all. With our failures and all. He still calls us His masterpiece. And unlike statues and paintings that hang on a wall and stand in halls, God has created you and I to do something. He's created us for action. He goes on and says, He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. Do you realize you and I were saved from something for something? He didn't just save us to be saving us. He saved us from something for something. The truth is God has a lot of work to do in you and me. And it's work that he planned for us to do long before we, ever, we were ever even born. That's why we gather together as a church family to get on mission with God. You realize there's a whole bunch of God's kids out there walking around who were created for a purpose who were chosen in advance, who were loved in advance, who were chosen and created before the foundations of this world. And then Satan stepped in, and he totally hijacked them. Just like he's hijacked a lot of us in the past. Maybe today he, you're hijacked by Satan. He's trying to keep you from finding out who you are in Christ. I'm trying to tell you who you are in Christ. God's Word every day is trying to tell you who you are. God's Spirit is trying to tell you who you are in Christ and if you're believing anything other than God, you're believing a lie. Satan wants to confuse every one of us to who we are in Christ. So this morning, could you stand to your feet with that thought in mind? Because I want to ask you a simple question today. After you've heard this message, let me ask you the question is, have you received that gift of grace for yourself? Have you received this gift of grace personally for yourself today? I'll just say it's not as hard as you think. It's not even as hard as a lot of people make it. And it's not some religious curriculum that you've got to work real hard on and you're going to be tested on later and you have to pass. That's not it at all. You can do it right now where you are. All you have to do is simply claim it. All you have to do is simply receive it. And really just come before God and say, God, I'm coming to you just as I am. I need you to resurrect me this morning. If you don't know Christ, just pray that he would resurrect you. He would breathe new life into your soul. He'll meet you where you are, I guarantee you. Anybody that ever met Christ, he came to where we were. Amen? I didn't really go to him. He came to me. All you have to do is invite Jesus Christ into your heart. And you know, a lot of Sundays I close without praying what they call the sinner's prayer. I'm going to just call it a prayer to invite Jesus to come in to be the Lord of your life. I want us all to pray it together, but if you've never made Jesus Christ Lord of your life and you desperately need Him to be Lord, I want you to just repeat us all together. And I believe as you repeat this prayer, Jesus is coming in. The angels are rejoicing in heaven over one soul that's been saved. So would you just repeat after me? Lord Jesus, I come to you in your name. I thank you for your sacrifice. I've heard your word. And I open my heart. And I invite you to come in to be my Lord, to be my Savior. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I thank you for dying on that cross and giving me new life. In Jesus' name, 
If you just prayed that prayer, your name was just written down in the Lamb's book of life. You're saved for eternity. But I want to complete this prayer. Father God, we come to you right now. Father, I pray that every heart is grateful, not only for the good news, but for the bad news. Because, Lord God, when we know the bad news, a lot of times it helps us to cherish the good news. And forgive us, God, when we spend too much time just talking about the good news. Because, God, we understand that we need to understand the diagnosis before we can ever get to the cure. And, Father God, that cure is your Son, Jesus Christ. We love you, Jesus. We trust you in what you've done for us. And I pray that every heart this moment, Lord God, would be drawing close to you. Father God, you are a real God. You are a God that loves us more than we could ever imagine or comprehend. And Jesus, you are a Lord and Savior that were willing, that was willing to go to that cross. I pray today that you would change somebody's life for eternity. I pray that you would move someone to death, from death to life. I pray that you would be like smelling salts, Lord God, under our noses if we are walking our, uh, sleepily walking way, our way through life. Wake us up, Lord God, to the realization that we need you now. Lord, I need you now more than I've ever needed you before. Lord, we love you as a congregation. We praise you as a congregation. We pray that you would always be lifted up in our lives. And we thank you for what your Son has done for all of us. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, and everyone said, Amen. God bless you all. Go out and